Hello to all. This is Nick Fletcher from Children's Healthcare Atlanta and Emory University, and this is the uh, fall version of Interview for a PDPod. I have a wonderful guest today, one of the most positive people I know, uh, and also a really unique um, children's orthopedist. Michelle Caird is chair of orthopedics for the entire Department of Michigan, one of only four female chairs in the country, and as far as I know, the only pediatric orthopedic chair in the country. And she is a uh, big advocate for diversity within orthopedics, especially for young female up-and-coming surgeons. Uh, she's very involved in POSNA. She's been on the board for a long time. She's been the treasurer and has held a lot of leadership roles there. And just in general, she's always a, a real pleasure to speak with. I've helped on some podium presentations with her at IPOS, and she's just always so upbeat and a real joy to speak with. So I really hope that you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation on orthopedics, basic science, program development, what it's like to become a chair and females in orthopedics uh, with Michelle Caird. And as always, thank you for supporting this concept and to Carter Clements and the rest of the podcast team for their help producing this. And I hope to see everybody soon as we start to get into the fall meeting schedule and that everybody stays safe during this uh, most recent Delta surge. So thank you and enjoy this uh, podcast. Michelle, thank you so much. Uh, for those of you who are listening, it is a Sunday morning in the spring or in the uh, uh, early fall, and we're getting ready as we were just talking about to start the meeting cycle. And Michelle's going to be going to the academy next week, and we we're talking about some of those things. So she she has been kind enough to grace me with her presence for the morning, and I'm excited uh, to get a chance to talk to you. So thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thank you for having me. It's it's definitely my pleasure. Thanks. So um, it's always interesting, I've said before, you know, if, if I were trying to find out about somebody who is like a big media presence, you can go online and find a lot. But I'm able to find sort of small snippets because most of us tend to have a academic profile on our university page. So that's sort of where I get to, to uh, know about you from an academic standpoint, other than our, our former uh, interactions like at IPOS and stuff like that. But it was interesting because I, I learned a little bit about your background. You grew up in Grand Rapids, um, and yes. you have you come from a family of uh, surgeons. I think yeah. there's a great quote that you said that uh, you thought all doctors were supposed to be surgeons, which I mean is sort of something that I that I love. But can you tell me a little bit about your uh, uh, your upbringing and and your family? Yeah, thank you. So I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And our family really got there um, in a very roundabout way. My grandfather was a, a urologist, and he uh, he was from California and had trained there. And during World War II, uh, he and my family, who were Japanese-American, were interned. And uh, although he had completed medical school and, and his internship, he hadn't finished uh, residency. And so during their internment, uh, he worked for the army surgeon as a surgical assistant or a junior surgeon. And that's where he met my grandmother, who had trained as a surgical nurse, and she was also interned. And they ended up getting married in the camp. Uh, and while my grandfather applied for residencies, and so he applied for residencies from camp and was accepted into a residency program at Mass General, 
And so that Massachusetts General Hospital was his sponsor to get them out of the camps near the end of World War II. So they moved to Boston. He completed his residency there, did his chief year in urology. And then when they went to find a job for good, they ended up in Michigan. And so, um, so then my, that's where my father grew up. And he became a vascular surgeon. And then I was raised in Grand Rapids. And that's where I first came to know medicine and where I thought for years, till I was about 10 years old, that every every doctor was a surgeon. And, and then why wouldn't they all be? So um, so it took me a little while to understand that. But um, but clearly, I was surgical thinking was was the way to go for me. That's awesome. So, so with that in mind, uh, were you sort of the classic tinkerer who ended up going into orthopedics because you like, you know, building things or like, what was the path getting to orthopedics like, especially with a urology and uh, vascular background in your family? I mean, orthopedics, especially children's isn't like the next logical step. <laughs> yep. So, uh, it wasn't necessarily building things, but we were always rigging things up. <laughs> so we made a haunted house one year, uh, complete with um, a slide down the steps. We um, we were always making things, um, turning our swing sets into other things, um, and uh, and trying to rig up our bikes and wagons. So that that's sort of where that um, that creativity and building came from in me. And, um, and when I went through medical school, I worked in the ECMO laboratory, oh, wow. uh, in our, during my undergrad and med school. And the creator of ECMO had his career at University of Michigan. And so those were really great opportunities. Uh, while I did that, I thought, oh boy, you know, really fine general surgery would be amazing. And then uh, I actually just spent a month on orthopedics and was absolutely, absolutely hooked. I thought, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I was actually in Bob Hensinger's OR for a month of the summer, and there were millions of kids jumping off of things and breaking things, and we were trying to keep up with them. And there were, uh, you know, wonderful spines happening. And this was before pedicle screws really got off the ground for kids. And so, um, so as the med student, it was my job to push on the rib hump as they got all the hooks um, engaged. And I thought, this is wonderful. So, um, so immediately orthopedics was the way to go for me. That's awesome. Now, did you have sort of surgical mentors who uh, who led you along? So I, I went to Vanderbilt and I trained under Neil Green and Neil Green and Bob Hensinger were cl- very close friends. Also, from my understanding, I don't know Bob super well, uh, very similar personalities um, and a little and I love Neil Green. Uh, but, you know, he, he could be a little bit of a bear. Who were your mentors that sort of brought you around? Was Bob big uh, in sort of your upbringing into children's orthopedics or how did that come about? Yeah, Bob has always been a big supporter of women going into 
into surgery and into orthopedics. And, um, and it wasn't, it was, um, in a roundabout way, he'd kind of test you out. Um, you know, you can't, you, you can't make much money and you got to work really hard and you, you really have to follow these kids for 20 years. And are you okay with that? And <laughs> if you said yes, then, then, um, then he was a wonderful mentor. And so Bob was a great mentor. Um, and, Fran Farley was at University of Michigan. She was early in her career and really was was carving a path for a woman to be a pediatric orthopedic surgeon and a mom and uh, an academic surgeon. And so both of them were really amazing mentors to me throughout. That's terrific. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Fran, and and I don't know her well, but uh, but obviously she, we've got the TSRH connection, and and she's great. I'm sort of curious because sort of at your generation, I'm going to call it within pediatric orthopedics. Did you find that there were a lot of sort of national role models within pediatric orthopedics who were females who you could sort of look at, and and for the for the reasons that Fran's so great from a, being a family woman, being a you know a researcher and a great clinician. Were there other role models who you looked to, who you met early on at POSNA or IPOS that sort of helped you along in this process? When I did my fellowship in pediatric orthopedics, I think it may have been the nadir in the number of people who did uh, peds ortho fellowships in the United States. So I believe there were about 10 of us wow. that year. Todd Milbrandt was one of my contemporaries, oh, no one of my peers. And, and so uh, during that time, uh, there weren't that many of us, um, but there were emerging women leaders in across the country in pediatric orthopedics, and uh, and Fran was so instrumental in helping me to meet people and make connections. Uh, there were, um, you know, Laura Tosi had had led us. Um, uh, Susan Sherrill, who was was just starting to um, really do more in in at Posna, um, I'm gonna forget all the really great women. Um, Laurel Blakemore was my program director in residency, and she um, had such a can-do attitude, <laughs> and nothing really was gonna um, was gonna stop progress, and so um, so she was real, um, wonderful mentor as well. Lori Carroll, uh, was across the country and, um, and doing great things. Um, so I think that it was sort of like that, well, I'm a material scientist by, um, by training. And so I always think of it as sort of like the crystallization energy, like there, it was just when something starts to crystallize, maybe it starts a little bit and then it goes melts again and then it starts a little bit. Um, and so I think it was in that process where it was just getting started. We were, we were just getting to that threshold where it was going to take hold and more women were going to really move into leadership um, robustly. That's awesome. That's a great analogy too. I like that. So, so you ended up, and and I was a Vanderbilt undergrad med school and residency kind of guy, and you're a Michigan undergrad med school residency kind of gal. So, what was it about Ann Arbor that really you wanted to stick around for that 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 kept you in that city? Uh, obviously, you've got ties to the region, but did you look? I mean, you know, were there reasons that you wanted to stay there? And I think the corollary to that question is, I I get you know we have a lot of kids from Atlanta 
who have been grown up in Atlanta, who go to undergrad in Atlanta, and then they're looking at med school and residency in Atlanta, and they come to me for sort of advice, and they, a lot of them know that I was at Vanderbilt. I'm curious your thoughts now, what you, what you, how you counsel kids who are coming out and are looking about, should I stay? Should I leave? Should I see more of the country and, and different philosophies? There are so many parts to the question. Yeah. So first, I grew up in Michigan, uh, and I um, and I really following Dr. Hensinger and Dr. Farley. I had a they both had a very deep commitment to the children of our state, um, and so we all know that um, children's medical care for kids who need really long term care comes through the states. Um, the funding comes through the states, and so um, they both showed and really um, imparted to me of a very deep um, commitment to the taking care of these children. And so that is from um, from down in Ann Arbor, where we're not super far from, from the border, um, all the way up to the very tip of the Keweenaw Peninsula, which is hours away. Um, but really that there were kids everywhere whom we could, could really help. And sometimes that meant um, meant us going to them through clinics and things like that. But um, that but that was my first thing that I felt like I could give back to not um, to the kids of my state and really even the kids where I grew up um, because I I do tend to see a patient or two from the west side of the state as well. So that was the first thing about about what I could give back. And then the the next part of it, I think, is tied up in, um, in training. And uh, there were just always wonderful opportunities here for me. We had a, a really strong residency. I, would, I knew I would train with some great people. I had a feeling from the very beginning of orthopedic residency that I wanted to go into pediatric orthopedics. And so this residency offered just some really wonderful um, things for somebody thinking that we could take call for kids at the Children's Hospital every night we were on call. It wasn't just one rotation where we did that. And um, at the time, we didn't have fellows at University of Michigan. So I knew that I could get all of, I could, I could grab all of Bob's attention, good or bad. Yeah. And, um, and that would, I, but that I would get that training even as a resident. And so those were things that were very attractive to me about the residency. Um, and then uh, another aspect of it, uh, about training specifically was that um, that there were there were uh, safer places to train being a woman in orthopedics and there were harder places where it was going to be harder and honestly I wanted to come to a place where if I was a good resident, I was a good resident. And if I was, if I needed a little attending to, then I needed attending to. But it wasn't because I was a woman that I was getting the attention one way or the other. It was because I was a, how I performed as a resident. And so that's, I wanted to take that out of the equation for my training. And this was a residency that had had many women through it throughout the years. And <laughs> I say many, um, but it's, you know, many is relative. It's all relative. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that was, it offered that, that, um, help and, um, really some assurances that I could concentrate on what was important for a trainee. In addition, there's that next step of staying here for, for, my career. And, uh, and I just, 
think that this is such a world-class place with such great collaboration that on the research front, on the clinical front um, and education, there were so, it had so much to offer. And, and, uh, and so that's why I got attracted back in and sort of caught in the web <laughs> and yeah. stayed. That's great. And, and what about your thoughts now for students who, uh, who may be looking to do a similar sort of thing? Um, do you feel like it's a bright idea in 2021 for people to maybe get out and see a little bit more? Cause I, you know, I question it. I love Vanderbilt. I wouldn't give anything back, but at times I'm like, it would have been cool to live, you know, in New York for a year or in uh, Michigan for year, or for four years or whatnot. Yeah. I think I, I always think that being broad is really helpful. So, um, so one of the things that one of the ways you can do that is by varying your training. And so I think that that is, it's much more of an opportunity now. Um, and especially for women, it's much more of an opportunity now than it ever has been. And then, you know, we tried to achieve diversity in our PEDS group by just like you said, by having a, a group of pediatric orthopedists who have training at multiple different sites, especially fellowship training at multiple different sites. So I, it just enriches all the things we do, the advice we give to each other, the conferences we have, the, you know, now we, we know 10 different ways to think about uh, neuromuscular casting and things like that. So I think that that is, it's very important. And um, although I wouldn't trade my decisions, I do encourage students to get, to be, um, you know, to really take advantage of the opportunity to be as broad as possible. Yeah, I feel the same way. So when when you joined in, you joined in 2004, if I'm uh, not mistaken, what was the department like at the time? And were there, you know, were you necessarily hired back to do one thing or just sort of to do a little bit of everything? And, and what were the needs that you thought, uh, saw both within the department, but also within your division at mm-hmm. that time? At the time that I came back, we were just made, had just been made a department. So when I was uh, graduate, j- just before I graduated residency, we had become a department. And uh, when I came back, we had our first chair. Bob Hensinger served as our uh, official first interim chair. And then uh, Jim Carpenter, who was, uh, who was a, a sports specialist, was, our, um, was the chair. And so I think we were young and getting our feet about being a department. Um, it was really very exciting. The section was uh, just four pediatric orthopedists. So Bob Fran was the section chief. Clifford Craig was our great partner. And then I uh, I came back. Dr. Blakemore had just left. and um, And so there was... Uh, a ton. There were tons of kids that that, um, that needed an orthopedist, uh, and uh, and my partners were really great at helping me, at mentoring me into being fearless and uh, wisely fearless in the OR, and um, and really um, developing my own style for caring for kids. So I, you know, I think that we were we were all 
it was, it was very much like a team. We're in this together and we, you know, we get through summers and then we write papers in the autumn and winter. And it it was just a really wonderful atmosphere for, um, for beginning my career. That's awesome. I mean, that's all you can ask for, right? As a a great team like that. So, um, you know, looking at your sort of interests, you've obviously navigated yourself towards uh, a couple of unique niche areas. For example, OI, uh, I know you have a big neuromuscular interest and and scoliosis, uh, but also the lab work. I was was interested because I knew that that you'd done a fair amount of basic science work. um, And now, now I know that it's because it probably was fostered with through your engineering background. But talk about that a little bit, because I, I'm always, you know, interested when I talk to people about how they bring bench work back to a busy clinical practice, especially where it may or may not have actually been there beforehand. It's hard to build that from the ground up. Yeah, we had wonderful orthopedic research labs and we're early in getting um, or, uh, getting that that lab part to be part of our um, enterprise. So even before we were our own department, the orthopedic research labs existed in in a partnership with Steve Goldstein, who led our who was PhD led our labs and um, really had biomechanics as his background. Steve always loved to collaborate and uh, is very gregarious. He had friends in the auto industry, and through those connections and curiosity, he brought micro CT to um, to medical applications before it had just been in in the auto industry and looking at um, failure. Uh, so Steve really created something wonderful, and the idea was that the surgeons clinicians would be really paired with uh, with basic scientists, with, um, with uh, mechanical engineers or materials engineers, et cetera. And so through those, those somewhat orchestrated collaborations, those partnerships could really flourish. So the scientists who need, really needed great um, research questions could um, could have much better informed questions and had better, um, really better, much better success in grant funding. And the clinicians, we could exercise a different part of our brains. We could and really be involved in helping to to answer some questions that we knew our patients needed answered. And so, um, so my one of those great collaborations for me was with Ken Kozlov. And Ken uh, was a material science engineer, as as I am, um, and uh, he was a he's a few years younger than me. But um, but we were really able to under understand um, uh, each other's language in both both on the um, certainly on the on the engineering side, and then I really tried to help him understand the clinical side of things, and so we worked to to sort of refine questions on bone strength we were really good at mechanics bone strength and then were there ways that we could modify that in in our oi models so we had a, a bunch of different uh, murine or mouse models of um of oi or bone that was not formed well with collagen difficulties and then um, we could try different drugs. We could try different interventions to see um, what bearing that had on on the strength of the bone and resistance to fracture and things like that. So, um, so 
that philosophy of of pairing and uh, pairing people up who had like interests, and then um, real specifically for us, um, the success came with Ken and my collaboration. That's spectacular. So I'm curious, uh, and and I had John Schenker on very early on in the podcast, and John and I are very close friends, so I sort of know how his life works where he has a very dedicated A lab and B like lab time. He sort of, uh, he jokes that he does four days in the lab and four days in the, uh, in the the (laughs) clinic a week and uh, somehow manages to do that in five days. Um, but I'm curious how practically how that works, um, as you're starting it out, because, you know, I do a lot of research as I'm sure you do on the couch, on the weekends, uh, you know, in between cases, but doing a basic science, project is different because you oftentimes need to be face-to-face and in a different physical uh, location. How did you work that? And how do you build in that time into your practice, especially now that you're even extra super busy? <laughs> so, uh, so I think one of the, um, one of the, again, this is where my partners, my clinical partners came to the rescue or really helped to shape this. So we said, here's, here's the schedule. <laughs> and here's where, I, um, they said, okay, you need to be available clinically did, 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 Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, Fridays, uh, our research. And so, um, so that could be, if I was taking advantage, that could have been, oh, I, I have four day weeks. <laughs> yep. I have three day weekends every week. Um, and that just was never, I, I was always very, very careful to make sure that every minute of every Friday, Friday that they carved out for me was um, was dedicated to research. So Ken um, and Ken and our students were really kind to help us have our lab meetings on Fridays, and um, and we we were very intentional um, as collaborators about we set up meetings every Friday and and we met every Friday just to make sure that. That, that the time was there and that the, um, the ideas could flow because we were being real careful about it. And, um, and I really, I really encourage folks who are given the, you know, the, the wonderful gift of time for research to, um, to not squander it, um, to show the partners that they're using it well and to be really thankful for it. So, um, so I always worked hard (laughs) year in, year out to submit something to POSNA as well as something to the ORS or the ASBMR with Ken. And, um, and so that, was also really great because Ken could then had another avenue for our work to get out there. And, uh, and I had another avenue, uh, similarly working with the grad students. So it was always wonderful. They always came in under Ken, but I, I love being part of, um, thesis committees, advising that's been always been really great. And certainly there are things that have changed as my career has changed. Um, so uh, Ken and I continue to do some of our bench work, and I'm also moving into some more um, 
database and uh, claims database work so that that's a little bit easier to do from not at the bench <laughs> with uh, the other couch. things yeah. <laughs> with the other things that I'm working on now. Yeah, that's great. So so I'm going to we're going to get back to your to some of the stuff ha- uh, related to your chairwomanship in the in, in a little bit. But I, I'm curious because at Emory, we when I when I started at Emory eleven years ago, we basically had one PhD, and he was a uh, biomechanics guy, sort of the the archetypical guy who helps the residents along with their MTS studies and whatnot. And um, our chairman now, Scott Bowden, has really built uh, basic science into the department. But I know a little bit about the the nuts and bolts of that. It's hard to do that. They, you know, the university, unless you are a funded researcher isn't that interested in just carte blanche giving you giving you a, a blank check to go find basic uh, science researchers. So I, I want you to sort of look at using your chair hat a little bit. How do you build and sustain what you develop? Because unless you guys had a lot of NIH funding at the beginning, it's that that stuff tends to roll in fits and spurts and, you know, you're cobbling together finances to allow your basic science, uh, you know, infrastructure to be built. So, so uh, I will just give credit to um, Larry Matthews, Bob Hensinger, and uh, and Jim Carpenter, uh, with the collaboration with um, Steve Goldstein, that <clears throat> that when times were good and NIH funding was easy to get, uh, the money was really carefully and thoughtfully put toward invested in the lab when it was easily available. And as it became a little less easily available over over these last few decades, we have had the funding there in place based on the infrastructure that they built and the the team that, that we built. So for example, we have space and we have the funding to pay for it. Like you alluded to, the university doesn't just give away space willy-nilly for nothing. So um, so we have that space, but we also do a really good job and are able to, to cover it. We also, um, I'll just say I'm so proud of our group. We were number nine last year in NIH funding for, um, for orthopedic departments. And as the opportunities for funding have really changed over the years. So there is, there are certainly clinical studies that can be done. Um, health outcomes research can be done and uh, industry funding for, for studies. So I think we've tried to be pretty broad in that and always bringing the, our clinical folks into this equation. And then we've had some really wonderfully successful uh, researchers. Um, and, uh, and I do think that it's through thoughtful partnership with, um, with Associate Chair for Research. Uh, Carl Jepson has been our Associate Chair for Research and really thinking about where is, where is that next person where does their expertise um, complement this group and fit the needs that we're seeing and and the direction that research is going? So I would say it was um, some good planning way back when when the money was good, and then um, really careful planning now that it um, it's a little tighter to get an AH dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I wanted to, uh, I mentioned earlier some of your clinical interests, um, especially OI. Um, and OI is something that I think a lot of us see in sort of small 
populations. Um, I have partner Jill Flanagan, who's very big in OI and bone health and whatnot. I'm curious how that came about, especially given your basic science background. Was this something that was sort of forged through interest in, in bone biology that just sort of built into the clinical side? Or was it the clinical side that drove the research? And, and you know, how, how did you come to really tackle this most challenging of patient populations who are so rewarding? Yeah. So we... There were a couple um, a couple ways that this came about. First, we're sort of uniquely nestled in Michigan <clears throat> between a bunch of Shriners hospitals where much um, OI care was administered or has been administered and continues to be. And so it was always a little bit hard for all of our kids to get over to a shrine. <laughs> and so, um, so we had a great, uh, a fair population of um, kids and parents with osteogenesis imperfecta. We also had some research collaborators, as I talked about on the basic science side, there was a lot of work in biomechanics. And so there were a couple of real key partnerships at the NIH with Joan Marini, who's a OI researcher, and with Ken Kozlov as he was coming up through and developing his career. And um, we were we're not a place where we had a lot of multidisciplinary clinics. And so I think I just went around smiling and asking people if they wanted to be in an OI clinic. Um, And so um, first I found it. an endocrinology fellow, pediatric endocrinology fellow, and um, and begged her to stay at Michigan <laughs> and be part of the clinic with me. And then the two of us took our little show on the road, and we went to each multi or each specialty group and said, you know, do you would you come to a clinic maybe once uh, twice a year? And everyone would say no at the meetings. And then somebody would come to me afterwards and say, I know that that they said no, but but I'll come. <laughs> I'll just come. We'll just fit it in once, you know, twice a year. So, so uh, it was really a um, work boots on the ground effort to get to get people to come, and so we were able to build that up, uh, and then uh, ha- we're able to really attract our our patients, get them to come at the same time, and and that I think that was really gave us momentum because the patients were so thankful and so helpful to one another and, um, and shared a lot of resources. And so it, uh, again, I guess that's a story of every single front came together where, um, for the interest of the patients and, and then the patients uh, responded so well to having that built that, that, um, that became something great. There also had been a long history with OI. Doctors Bailey and Dubow were um, were from Michigan, so Dr. Bailey was a um, was a uh, an attending at Michigan, and Dr. Dubow was a a resident, and they originally designed those rods um, and that were really the first telescoping rods for human application, with the idea that if you could sort of get them to stick in the epiphyses that they might support and grow with the 
the kiddo. Um, uh, interesting story along the way. I think everybody who used them felt like, ah, there's that funny little tea piece that always comes off. Why can't we fix them into the epiphyses better? And uh, what had happened was there was a, a veterinarian who had designed rods for dogs that telescoped, not really with the intention that they telescoped, but that's how you put them in. So you put them in from each end and they sort of mated and then stayed together. And the intention wasn't for them to grow with the dog or anything like that. But that that um, vet <clears throat> got wind that Bailey had created these <clears throat> and and sued him for patent infringement. Oh, you're kidding. No. And so, and doc, and they lost. And so Dr. Bailey was so angry. He vowed he'd never, he, he could never, you know, take it and he wouldn't be able to make any more improvements to those rods. So this veterinarian who thought he was going to cash in <laughs> on, on OI rods, on the Bailey Dupo rods, um, really <clears throat> actually set the set that back um, many years. And so that's why we had to rely on the Sheffield nail to, to really make the improvements um, that were needed for, you know, getting that to stay in at the end, getting rid of the, the, the T piece being another piece and all of those advances had to be made outside of the U S. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That so, is a crazy story. Yeah. I, I, I presented that story one time at one of the OI conferences with patients there and at the end, people were super thankful and um, patients were super thankful. One patient came up to me and said, um, oh, th- you know, I just I, I wondered what happened to Dr. Bailey. He treated me when I was a kid and I named my first pet Bailey. <laughs> so I thought, oh, that's such a great, great way for that story to come full, full circle. That's so that's great. that's a little bit of some of the trials and tribulations of uh, device creation as well. So as you've, uh, and we're, I wanted to talk about some of the stuff related to your uh, chairwomanship in a minute, but as you've morphed into that position, I mean, OI takes a lot of work. So how have you sort of framed your current practice with the responsibilities of being a chair? I served as interim chair for a while. And while I did that, I um, tried to keep my practice at full steam for most of that time. Uh, but over the last year of interim chairship, I um, dialed back a little bit. So, um, so I've tried to, my, my practice is about half the time in the OR that it used to be. And, um, and I think you're right, there are some, some populations of patients that really need intense care. And it's not scheduled care. <laughs> we, can't, we just can't do it when it's convenient for us. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, so I've worked with my great partners. Again, that theme of a really wonderful group is important. And I've tried to, um, we're working to build practices of our younger partners. And so some of the patient populations, we've said, okay, we're really transitioning that group to my younger partner, as well as the physical medicine rehab docs, so that that those clinical collaborations are right there, ready to go and help these patients out. So for example, a lot of the kids with um, spinal muscular atrophy, 
or muscular dystrophy, whom I offered the bulk of care for, were slowly transitioning over to um, to Dr. Noel White, and um, and I think with me still available if <laughs> if patients have concerns or uh, aren't quite ready to make a move. And that process, I think, has been a little bit bittersweet, but at the same time, uh, really, to me, makes helps me make sure that the patients are so well cared for in a way that I can't quite do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I want to talk about the uh, your position as chair. And I think it's really cool. It was it was nice. I was at Posna when they sort of announced that you would be uh, that you're going to be filling that role permanently. And I'm curious about the journey towards that. Was that something that you had always wanted to do that sort of fell in your lap and you weren't necessarily thinking about? I know that you have a lot of interest in leadership and have served on pause in a leadership capacity and obviously within within your department. But where did this come from? And, you know, what were some of the stories that came out of it? We I'm going to take a step back. So uh, we uh, I, I feel like I've always had these great mentors that have said, you can do anything. <laughs> and, um, and so uh, being a, a chair of a department of orthopedic surgery was not something that I decided on when I was eight years old. Uh, however, I really always um, welcome opportunities. I try to make uh, get myself ready for opportunities. Uh, I also try not to um, feel like to beat myself up and say, oh, I could never do that. So I'm always open to possibilities. And I'm always thankful when people are willing to think of me for things like that. So a lot of that comes from Dr. Farley and Dr. Hensinger, just never seeing a ceiling on what what we might do. And, um, and Fran um, has always um, pushed and pushed and said, you know, go, go do that. You just, <laughs> you just walk in there and tell them you're doing it. And then what will they say to you? Uh, the worst they could say is no. So, um, so I, you know, that she has always been uh, uh, a real impetus for me to try new things. Um, I also have a, my approach to leadership is, is that I really want to try to listen and, um, and help get people the, the resources that they need to do well. And so I think that that style is something that is really important, especially now in healthcare. I also, um, other mentors, I've talked a lot about my mentors at Michigan, but I always felt like um, Jack Flynn, with whom I trained at CHOP, was an amazing mentor who really gave me, um, always gives me time, uh, thoughtful advice, and and he's always been encouraging. Um, Steve Frick is another amazing mentor. Uh, whom I had the the for, great fortune to be paired up with through the AAOS leadership group. And so I think those people have been so instrumental along the way. And then, you know, I think the the other big component of of um, my being a chair is that there just aren't any women chairs. And so, you know, we we have six percent 
of practicing orthopedists are women. It's creeping up there. It might be, we might be close to nine, um, around 15% of residents, orthopedic residents are women. We are steadily on pace to reach gender parity in orthopedics in uh, 2354. <laughs> and, and I just think that that's not right, that we can, we can bend that curve, we can make that go faster. Uh, and so knowing all of those things, um, and again, with a real sense of duty and understanding of all the things that people have done for me, uh, including what the sacrifices my family made it, as surgeons along the way, um, that presented with this opportunity, I absolutely feel that I have an, a deep obligation to do this and do a really good job at it. That's awesome. So I'm uh, in that light, what are your goals as a chair? I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because we as children's orthopedists oftentimes get put in the corner. I mean, we've, we've got a big department, uh, but we actually, uh, for, for, up until two years ago, there were just two children's orthopedists in all of Emory and 70 clinicians. So we joined the, the, the former Scottish Rite group, and now we've got like 15 people. But, but up until then, it was just two of us. And so we were very, very active in the academic side, very active in the education side. But at the end of the day, we represented, you know, 4% of the total department. So, you know, with, with, with PEDS as the background, how, what, what goals do you have as chair and how do you accomplish them coming from like little children's orthopedists, uh, which sometimes doesn't hold the weight against the joints and the sports and the spine guys? Yeah, uh, I think part of it is the um, the unique setup for Michigan, the way that the departments are organized, the way that the children's hospital is um, is freestanding and yet attached, allows us to have offices close by and really be very integrated into the department. So that's always been, even though the call systems are separate now because it's a freestanding hospital, we have. Um, daily interactions with our um, our adult orthopedic colleagues. And so the, I think that part of the organization allowed for this to even be considered. Um, in addition, I think the the research um, is very valued. And so we as a group played a big part in well-organized research for our department. The education piece is always very valued and the residents spend a lot of time um, specifically on pediatric orthopedics. So I think that is um, another thing that keeps us really tied to the department. And then on the financial side, um, at the end of the day, we're not a huge department, but Peds Ortho is a large contributor to the the financial health of the department as well, it, as well as the contributions in all of those other areas. And so, um, I think that gives a voice. And um, I was able to move up as residency program director, so that gave me another um, level of understanding of how all of the services ran um, and how uh, education happened on each of the services. And then uh, so that I think that gave another um, another window into into what was happening at the department level. And so I, I might just say that it was it's 
a bunch of unique circumstances that really allowed for this to happen. But like I said, once that chance was there or that opportunity might arise, I wasn't going to let it go um, without fighting for it. Um, because I think that, um, that uh, it's a, it's a great way for, um, for pediatric orthopedics to be um, known and represented and for women in orthopedics as well. Absolutely. And what goals do you have for the department in your first couple of years? Yeah. So I'm so excited. Um, we, financial health, of course, is always a goal. We have a, a huge population of patients that we are not serving very well right now. We don't have enough uh, arthroplasty surgeons. So some of this is is really recruitment and growth, which is really exciting. We hope um to uh, work to consolidate some of our service lines at some really key um, key sites for operating. Um, so all of those uh, sort of operational things of um, improving efficiencies and and uh, serving our patients well. Um, but one of my really deepest held goals is that I I, I first noticed it that we could make a difference um, when I was program director, that we really had an opportunity to, to change the narrative and broaden orthopedic surgery and especially through training. So if we can recruit people who have really broad uh, experiences and are, uh, are diverse in many ways, then we can really enhance our residency but we can also enhance the experience for patients and then it multiplies as those trainees go out into their own practice. And so uh, I think that's one one way that I really wanted to change was to um, to recruit more diverse residents. But then, you know, if there's only a certain pool that have even been interested in orthopedics and um, that I don't feel like that's, that's not where the answer lies. I think it's really outreach beyond med, uh, beyond those who have already decided to go into orthopedics and really rec- actively uh, trying to interest uh, people earlier in in our great specialty and so um so we work with we work with med students we work with undergrad students we go into the high schools we work with um doctors of tomorrow which is which is at um at the cast tech high school in detroit and then across the state we're working to help with the perry initiative and middle school, high school girls to try to get them interested in orthopedics as well. And then after the residency work, to create that environment where the residents feel like, okay, this is good. I can learn well here. The culture is really great. There's also um, an opportunity to diversify our faculty as well and our staff. And so that's been such a wonderful, uh, just an amazing opportunity. And um, and my biggest goal is to have a very diverse faculty and then have the, the culture where people really feel like, oh, you know, I, I can do my best here. No matter where I came from, no matter what, um, what my skill set was, I can be better, broader. I can help more people because I was part of Michigan. And so that's, that's my big goal for us. That's awesome. Now, I, I'm sure that uh, jumping into a role like chair comes with some surprises. Any big sort of surprises that came up in the, in the first year of your <laughs> time there that you were like, wow, I was not expecting that? Uh, you know, I think that there are always... Um, 
a couple areas that I wanted to concentrate on. I, I wanted to give us a little more structure and have the the faculty be able to participate in a in a more in, at a more informed level. So we did things like uh, really got the finance committee going so that all of our faculty could really understand our finances um, rather than have it be a big black box where people were always assuming <laughs> that, um, you know, how much money was there and who was making the decisions and why. Um, I wanted our faculty to understand it and take an active role in the decision-making processes. Um, so we did that. We talked about diversity and we implemented a, um, an associate chair for diversity within the department and a diversity committee. And that is the committee that um, has more people asking to be on it than any other <laughs> committee. So um, I think that's been really wonderful. Um, uh, I, I would say that um, along the lines of finances, we just started from scratch on that finance committee and, he and helped people understand with sort of um, funds flow, academic medicine 101, um, which you could probably spend your whole career trying to understand. <laughs> but we really worked, um, worked to understand that better. And having 10 <clears throat> faculty members understand that as the pandemic came on and as COVID hit and as hard financial choices needed to be made, it was, um, it was really amazing that I had 10 people who understood our finances and could help with the decisions or could help um, communicate the decisions and, and why we, we were having to make choices and things like that. So I think that that was really pretty amazing. And then people have just been so helpful. <laughs> I, I, I didn't expect people not to be helpful, but it's been really wonderful to recognize how supportive people are of this, uh, of me in this position and how much they want to dig in and help, um, help us do, do well. So I think that's been really great. That's awesome. Now, uh, so my chairman here in the PED side is Mike Schmitz and we're very good friends and we've got a really big group. Um, and it's funny because, you know, I think a lot of us grow up as like type A people and we go through med school. And so chair uh, is this, you know, potential future goal for a lot of people. And I've had a lot of conversations with Mike where he's like, trust me, there are days you definitely don't want to do this. <laughs> and one of the challenges that he speaks the most about, he's got teenage boys and, you know, they're at that really fun age. They're all really good mountain bikers. And they go out and do that a lot is the work-life balance. And it's funny because I think I've asked every guest how to do it and nobody has a good answer. I think Min was the one who told me basically there's no such thing as work-life balance. But how do you, as you're really growing into that position of chair that does take so much time and you're trying to you know, claw back as much of your clinical practice as you can, how do you balance family? Mm -hmm. We, um, so, so Andy's my husband. We've been married for 26 two years now. Awesome. Uh, and we have a daughter, Julia, and she is 14. She starts high school tomorrow. Wow. And so we're super excited. Um, we have, I, I think that what you said where there's no real balance, but, um, but it's always, uh, I think being really mindful and careful and, and then, um, and trying to to know what's coming down the road. So, for example, summertime is always busy for any pediatric orthopedic surgeon, and we just know it. And we've done things like 
Michigan is beautiful in the summer. And so we stick around close to home and there's a pool down the street. And that is, and I live about seven minutes from the hospital. And so I can go to the pool down the street. I can be on call. I can pop in and fix a couple super common humus fractures and then join my family back in the pool uh, later in the afternoon. Um, so, but that a lot of that is intentional around being in a city that where it's easy to drive, where I, I can live close to the hospital and where I can have things to do that are with my family. And then uh, when summer ends, then, then things slow down and that's when we get a chance to do other types of activities together. So it's really um, been around kind of, planning out the times when we think we're going to be busy and trying to, um, you know, focus on, okay, we're, uh, mom's going to be busy for a while or for a summertime, but then, you know, then we'll, we'll be able to do our two trips in the autumn or things like that. So that's, that's one of the ways. And then uh, I made a point of reading to my daughter, even when she, when she was well beyond needing me to read to her. And we did that almost every night. And so even if I had to, um, you know, pop back, uh, even if I knew I had a case that was going to go late, um, I would come home and do a little reading with her before I went back. And so that has always been something that, that we've had together. And, uh, and so I think it's sort of picking the important things and then and then working from there. But I, I totally agree that there are some times where you're like <laughs> you can't even see straight. You're so busy, um, and uh, and and it's really having a wonderful understanding partner and um, and a very independent daughter, and that I've been very lucky. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I've got uh, Atlanta school start early, so I've got a new high school uh, girl as well, and it's amazing. It's, uh, it's a different life. So, um, so you you've been great because you've spoken a bunch about diversity, and and one of the things that I really uh, you know uh, loved as a memory was that time at EPOS or EPOS a couple of years ago where they had all the the women on stage, and I mean it was a huge portion of the meeting contingent. I don't know the total number, but I, I've heard it's around one twenty, one thirty. Um, which has got to be the largest percentage in all of orthopedics. So I'm curious, um, I've certainly got my own uh, assumptions, but to what do you attribute the you know, real groundswell in female uh, surgeons, female applicants uh, within Peds Ortho? I think Peds Ortho has always had its own character. So first, it's, had, um, it's always been very academic, and by nature, it's always been clinically very collaborative um, uh, as a group, but also with uh, with the other specialists back at home that that um, we need to collaborate with to take good care of patients. <clears throat> and so, I think those two things um, are always really attractive to um, to women in general. I think that. That academic nature of pediatric orthopedics has meant that there's been really great mentorship and um, and a lot of education sharing, and so I think that has given women a chance to feel more comfortable and and really um, really 
be interested in the specialty. Um, if there were, you know, along the way, if there were times when people, when women were being told, ah, you're too, <laughs> you're not big enough to do blah, blah, blah. Then, um, then maybe that sort of shunted women toward peds ortho a little bit more than, and, or away from other specialties. Um, but I also think that there have been really strong women as mentors and examples. And so, that has been really wonderful. I'll always say that my my greatest friends are in pediatric orthopedics, and um, and you know when we're back to our regular old meeting circuit and things like that, I may see I may see my peds ortho friends more often than I see some of my colleagues around the hospital, and so that wonderful camaraderie is a really wonderful. Um, it is really great um, benefit of pediatric orthopedics too. And I think that um, the younger women who are looking at subspecialty choices can feel that, can see that. And I think uh, we're willing to talk about it and just say, you know, we, this is really great. Um, and it's a great subspecialty and, and to talk about how to make it even better. And so having those conversations be out front has been helpful to or pediatric orthopedics as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's great. You know, you mentioned your, uh, sort of internal drive to expand females, you know, sort of locally through high schools, through colleges and, and, and med school. And my assumption has been that more and more we have gone away from the, the, the comments that you alluded to, oh, you're too small or you should try peds because of this, so that more women, I'm sure, are feeling empowered to do it. But, you know, the numbers probably haven't ticked up a ton. Um, and ha- what do you think we need right now? I mean, how can we continuously expand the, the the group of women who are interested, you know, not only in orthopedics, but specifically in peds ortho, um, so that so that we bend that curve and we ha- we're, we're closer to parity than t- the middle of the 23rd century. <laughs> um, I, one of the things that I think is really important when I when I when I see a med student comes to me or a resident comes to me, I think sometimes uh, the focus has been in the past. Oh, you know, we can you know we can help a ton of people. Or um, you know, it's really it's hard work, and we can um, we can make. Uh, financially, it's a really great thing to go into. But I think if the message that I work on is that we can return patients to function and that it's very, um, it's very professionally satisfying to be able to help people in that way. Um, so when people are thinking about, oh, should I go into internal medicine? Should I be an orthopedic surgeon? You know, I think that there are some things where we just can help people so much and they're so thankful and that that is very sustaining on a day-to-day year-to-year basis and so that's that's such a wonderful part of being an orthopedic surgeon and then for pediatric orthopedics uh, I think that it offers in contrast to many of the other subspecialties of orthopedics, I think it offers that the chance of a longitudinal um, relationship with a patient and their family and the ability to really, uh, again, make changes for them and help them 
uh, as they, as they grow. So, um, so I always say I might meet, I might meet a patient in utero who has club feet and I'll follow them for years to make sure that we've got their feet in good position and that they move well and that they get to do the things they want to do. And so I think, um, that's another, um, uh, that's something that's, um, somewhat unique to pediatric orthopedics. And I think it's something that is attractive as well. So those are some of the things that I talk about and try to play up. You know, you've got, you're a little bit unique also because of your engineering background. And obviously female engineers are probably also less common than male engineers. And I think orthopedics historically has been thought of as this, you know, sawing, chiseling, nailing, you know, engineer-based, mechanical-based field how do you address, you know, young women who maybe don't have the same bend that they're not necessarily as mechanically inclined maybe as you were, but have an interest in form function, obviously the, the, the attributes that the musculoskeletal system provides and, and how they can see the benefit without necessarily having had to have a, uh, an engineering background that they could be an English major, a philosophy major. <laughs> so I always tell them that, um, that with a little thought and a little leverage that, um, that you can get anything done. It doesn't matter if you're little or big. And so, um, so I, that I try to just put the, those fears to rest that you don't have to be huge to be a, um, to, to reduce a hip, um, in the emergency department. You don't have to, um, you don't have to, uh, be so strong to, um, or have such stamina to be able to do this kind of surgery or that kind of surgery. But if you have thoughtful planning and you really, if we can refocus onto the part, the parts of, um, of the parts of these procedures and this life that we find exciting, the whole spectrum of it, not just the, um, not just the pounding and bagging and, and all of that, then I think, um, it, opens up the possibility for more people to try that on and to find something that they like about it as well. So, uh, you know, and I think plenty of people would just never really pounded a, you know, pounded a nail down a femur, but if they did, I think they, lots of people would love it. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Totally. We've got so many of us involved. Right. So, um, you know, it was cool this year. I'm part of the, uh, annual meeting committee. And so at the annual meeting, Woody had included that, Woody Sankard included that DEI initiative, um, discussion on Saturday morning, which I thought was great. Um, I'm curious, that's obviously going to grow and it's going to be expanded into other areas, whether it be IPOS and continuing this, I think, at, at uh, the annual meeting. Um, what do you think POSNA can do to further the DEI uh, initiative within its, uh, you know, within its educational process, within its outreach process um, to, to sort of continue to grow that area and not just have it be a 45 minute symposium once a year, but actually expand off of that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I will I'll highlight a couple things that I think are really great. So first, um, having the symposium, just doing it is really wonderful. And, um, and the content was so incredible. Um, and I'm so thankful for the people who were the speakers and those who organized it. I thought it was really wonderful. Uh, I think that um, calling it out, paying attention, and giving voice to people is really important. There are a lot of, we have lots of publications and other um, media 
uh, that as POSNA we have access to and we can put out. And so I think that those are other great ways that we can keep this as a front and center issue. So, for example, I was really so honored to be asked um, to work on uh, an editor- a guest editorial with Jason Brooks regarding diversity in pediatric orthopedics. And I, and I think that Ken Noonan, who's the editor, really has plans to, um, to continue that um, as, a, as a, a guest editing opportunity, uh, which is really wonderful. So I think just not taking the pressure off now that now that things have really started rolling. Um, let's not let's not step back and let the ball roll back down the hill. If we, you know, if we really keep working on it, keep talking about it. And, and with a really, I, I think that we have a lot of cause to be very positive about where we're headed in pediatric orthopedics. And I think that's great. The, there's been a lot of work on where are women in leadership throughout orthopedics where are women in um, at the podium how how do we do our um, publishing and some of that is our is things that can be fixed really at a higher level but a lot of it is through mentoring that getting to the podium is is about men, being mentored to be helped to get there and and then and to be helped to structure time just like all the questions that you've asked and the things we've been discussing it, um, we we need to help um, uh, women to see these possibilities and then um, and then really be able to actualize that. Uh, so so um, yeah, you know that brought to mind one other thing. Um, we worked. Um, I I was really fortunate to be the junior member at large um, as a board member of the of Posna board. Um, it's probably been about eight years now, 10 years now. And so I felt I was so honored to have that position. And then I thought, well, you know, I'm, I get to send out the membership survey. And is there anything else that I'll be able to help with these couple of years? And one of the things was that we worked to add another I guess coincident with my position on that um, committee was that I was elected to the nominating committee for POSNA. And um, I get, well, must've been slightly separate in time, but what we did was we looked at it and we said, well, how the, how do we get more women involved in leadership? And we felt like the pathway to leadership in Posna was that you really needed to be a junior member at large on the board and get opportunities to do committee work and things like that. And um, but there were only um, two junior at large members. There were three senior at large members, and we said, you know, if all the women, if the if the the percentage of women, the highest percentage of women is in our younger members, then then why can't why don't we have the same number of junior members as senior members uh, on the board, and really give women a open up that chance where where all the women really are um, for them to to be on the board and get that leadership experience, and so. Um, so we were able to work to add that position to the board. And I think that I, I, I'm really hopeful that that will be um, an avenue, although it takes a while, um, for more women to get that experience and then 
have opportunities at higher levels of leadership in within POSNA. And that's just one of the ways uh, it, it was a, a good idea. It keeps the junior and senior members balanced, but also um, creates opportunity. So um, without um, sort of saying, okay, <laughs> the 10 women in pediatric orthopedics get all the jobs. I mean, that's not that. I think we, um, that's, that's too, um, too blunt and and uh, and not really fair, um, but give, creating more opportunities, I think, is really the way to go, and and uh, that's how I think we can continue to change. That's awesome. So speaking of Posna, you've had, like you alluded to, some really important roles in Posna, and I know that you're super passionate about it, about the organization as well. But you've been treasurer, you've been uh, you've been on the board for a while, as you uh, were alluding to. Um, you know, what are some of the things that you've really learned about sort of organizational uh, excellence through POSNA? Um, and I think most importantly, because there are a lot of, I've, I've uh, learned that a lot of younger surgeons listen to this podcast. What advice do you have for young surgeons starting out who, for example, want to be a junior member at large or, or get uh, get involved with other committees? I'm, I'm always sort of curious how people view those kind of things. So um, I think three things to remember. The first is that this organ that POSNA is an amazing organization with um, such dedication to the mission, to the education, to each other and to the patients. And the our administrative staff are incredible, <laughs> um, and and uh, and the the board is really um, you know every year it's a different board, but it's made up of so many people who are so dedicated to pediatric orthopedics, and that's really wonderful. So having a passion and in the within the the for the um, the the organization itself, I think is really amazing. Um, I had lots of opportunities. Um, I just signed up every time I could sign up for anything. I just signed up for things, um, when I was starting out and in, as a, um, as a young member, I think being on the podium or be having posters out there is really important way to, um, to be noticed. Uh, Bob Hensinger told me that I had a, every meeting I went to, I had to stand up on the first day and say my name and ask a question. And if I, I ought to do it in the first session, cause that's when everybody was there. So, um, so I would, I could barely speak. Uh, speak with the frog in my throat. I'd write my question down and I'd stand up and try to try to croak out my question. Um, but I did it every time. And, um, and then, uh, within, um, I, I, I always volunteered to review abstracts for all those sorts of things. And if I got picked, then that was great. But I also went back to the program committee or whoever was in charge and just said, did I do a good job for you? Do you have metrics? Do you have suggestions on how I could do better? And so, um, so those, it, through those mechanisms, I think I was really able to try to make myself better at those things and to show that the great interest that I had in the organization. And, um, and one other important part about POSNA is that the the folks are so approachable and really want to um to help in any way that 
that we can. And so, um, so I think, you know, taking advantage of, of that, that was really open invitations to, um, for mentorship or for, um, you know, just advice type of things I think is really great. So I would advise people to, to do that. I'm, I'm always happy to meet people and, and try to help wherever I can. Yeah, I think that was one of the saddest parts I felt like of the last year, at least on an academic side, as somebody who's involved with IPOS. I love the, you know, the the relationship that you form with with young residents, with fellows, and you know, and and junior faculty. I've met so many. You know, I'm in first year practice, and you know, how do you do this? Or I just I think it's such a great thing, and it was sad not to have it last year. So I, I, I echo all the sentiments. I think it's yeah. great, and also the idea to just sign up for anything. anything <laughs> yeah, for sign up for everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, well, good. Well, Michelle. This has been such a pleasure, and I knew it would be, and I was excited Thanks. to talk to you. You're such Thank a positive you. person, um, and I look forward. I know you'll be at IPOS, and I'll be at IPOS, and that'll be fun. And uh, I hope that the Academy goes well for you this week. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Thanks so. very much. Oh, Nick, it's so nice to to talk with you. I really appreciate the opportunity to, to, um, to chat about um, some these things that are so important to me. I, um, I really enjoyed our time talking together. Well, the passion is obvious. So it's great. It's great. So thank you very much. And I hope that you uh, have a good rest of the summer and fall and that scully season winds down soon for you. It's, ours has been over for about a month. So. All right. Yeah, okay. okay.